This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. And I hope you're enjoying the summer. I think we've got a great show for you today. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming. You'll never miss a show and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Dave Goulson. Dave is a professor of biology at the University of Sussex in England. He specializes in bee ecology and is considered one of the world's greatest experts on bumblebees. His latest book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, examines all of the ways your average citizen can reverse the decline in insect populations. We will talk about the book and also take a deep dive into the lives of bumblebees. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Catherine. It's a pleasure. It's really great to have you on the show. I just loved reading your new book, Silent Earth. It really was sobering to think about a planet with no insects. As you say in your book, insects are the food chain for all of us, wildlife and humans. Do you think people really understand that concept? No, sadly, I I don't. I mean, of course, some people do, but I think the majority of the population are kind of oblivious, you know, it's not on their radar. They have no idea that the food in the supermarket depends on a, you know, a functioning ecosystem on healthy soils, on pollinators. And I think there's a real kind of disconnectedness from nature, which I guess is one of the things I spend my life trying to repair. The other part about your book that I loved was you use this analogy about alien movies like Independence Day. As you say, in movies like that, we humans always play the good guys who save everyone, but we're really not the good guys, are we? Sadly not, you know, I guess we don't see it. But as you mentioned, I mean, that there is actually a direct parallel between, it's a silly movie, but entertaining and Independence Day. But, you know, in, in that, nobody needs to explain that the aliens are the bad guys, and but the aliens are just arriving with the intention of, taking whatever they want from our planet. Well, you know, on a slightly smaller scale, when we arrive on the back of a bulldozer in the depths of the rainforest, from the perspective of all the creatures that live there, you know, we're the alien. We've arrived to just take what we want and wreak havoc. So actually, there is a very obvious parallel there. And it's kind of sad, isn't it, that we don't recognize what we're doing and realize that It would be nice to think that we would show a kind of duty of care to the rest of the planet, to all the other amazing creatures that live on it. As we are the most powerful, intelligent creature on the planet, 
Um, that doesn't give us the right to wipe everything else out, surely. You know, I, I think everything has a, a right to life. Clearly not everyone sees it that way. To your way of thinking, what do you feel is the single biggest aspect threatening insects right now? Is it habitat loss? I put that up front in the book. And in the broad sense, I think that's true. I mean, clearly we're still chopping down tropical forests and, you know, destroying pristine habitats, particularly in developing countries. And that probably is a massive driver of biodiversity loss, particularly insects. But then on a sort of in a slightly different way, the way farming has changed in the developed world has resulted in a loss of relatively species rich habitats that we used to have with the extensive farming system we had 100 years ago, which have been swept away and replaced by monocultures of crops and all the associated chemical inputs and so on. So kind of habitat loss is also tied into chemical usage and, and the way we farm. I think all of that kind of put together is really the big driver of insect declines. And in the book, yet you say it's still not too late. What can an individual do to help insects survive or rebound? Yeah, I mean, there is good news here. You know, most insects haven't gone extinct and could come back given a bit of support. And, and actually, they can recover really quickly. You know, unlike giant pandas, which are incredibly slow to reproduce, as are many mammals, you know, insects can actually, their populations can spring back in just a year or two if you give them somewhere to live. So what can ordinary folk do? Well, if you've got any kind of garden, yard, you can invite insects in to, to live there by not using pesticides, by growing some native wildflowers, making a little pond maybe, just generally treading more gently in your backyard. And it really works, you know, that you can have literally thousands of species of insects living in a, in a small backyard. It's a really interesting example from the UK where this lady called Ginny Owen, she spent 35 years cataloguing the wildlife in her little it was eighth of an acre garden in an urban area in the city of Leicester in the UK. And anyway, after 35 years, her species list was 2,673, which I mean, I think is amazing. That was plants, insects, birds, amphibians and so on. Most of those were insects. Wow, um, that, that is amazing. Show, yeah, how much life we could have living in our towns if we all managed our gardens more gently. But there's other stuff we can do too. You know, we can vote for politicians that actually promise to do something about these environmental issues. We can vote with our pocket by what we choose to buy and particularly the food that we, we buy and eat. There's power there. If enough of us chose for example, to buy organic produce, well, that would have a big impact on pesticide use. So there are lots of ways in which we all kind of can influence our impact on the planet, be it positive or negative. So the silver lining in all of this is that with just a few positive changes in someone's yard, you can actually help the insects bounce back. Yeah, I mean, this is, I'm really passionate about this. I'm lucky I've got a, a big garden. I spent my whole life working towards having a big garden, two acres, which in UK standards is huge. And it's completely managed for wildlife. I mean, I, I do grow vegetables and fruit and so on, but in a pretty benign and not very tidy way. And it's just seething with life. You know, it's amazing. I, I can sit there in my shaggy knee length lawn 
watching the butterflies flying about, feeding on the flowers. And it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. And my dream is to persuade everyone to turn their gardens over to nature, basically. Now, being the Bird Hugger podcast, I have to say, you know, birds are, for the most part, insect obligate and really cannot survive or raise their young without a great deal of insects being accessible to them. Your average pair of chickadees, when they raise a nest, will you go through 7,000, 8,000 caterpillars just to raise their young? And that's just for one nest. So the, the need for these insects to be allowed to thrive is absolutely crucial to the birds, I would think. Yeah, and and not just birds, of course, you know, bats and frogs and toads and lizards and freshwater fish all depend on on insect life for food. And sadly, one of the many lines of evidence we have for insect declines is is that insect-eating birds seem to have done disproportionately badly in recent decades. Things like swallows and swifts and martins and flycatchers and so on are, are all in precipitous decline, both in Europe and in North America. As I say, we don't be too doom and gloom. We could turn this round. It isn't yet quite too late, I would say. Now, you say in the book that insects emerged roughly 400 million years ago, yet their origins still remain a mystery. Could you go into that a bit? Yeah, well, we know about 500 million years ago that the sea was teeming with with arthropods. So arthropods are invertebrates with external skeletons, things like crustaceans and and insects and spiders and so on. There was this extraordinary diversity. This is way, way back, half a billion years ago. From that marine mass of creatures emerged the arthropods that have survived to the present day, including the insects. So somewhere in between 500 and 400 million years ago, the ancestors of the insects crawled out of the sea exactly what they looked like uh, we honestly you know the fossil record for these little creatures from so long ago is pretty sparse so we don't really know exactly what the first insect looked like probably never will know but we do know that they've been around for an awful long time the earliest insects appeared nearly twice as long ago as the oldest dinosaurs they still to this day in terms of numbers of species and numbers of individuals. This is the planet of the insects. Right, exactly. So now, could we shift gears a little bit and talk about bumblebees? I read your book, Bumblebees, Behavior, Ecology, and Conservation, about eight years ago, and I could not put the book down. You know how when you love a book, you take it with you everywhere, in the car, or taking it to work, <laughs> stopping at red lights to read a chapter, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Now, you call bumblebees the intellectual giants of the insect world. Why is that? Well, because we have lots of evidence that they they are smart. They have relatively big brains, literally, and they're capable of all sorts of really impressive feats of, of navigation. They can find their way to and from distant patches of flowers that can be miles, literally miles from their nest. They can really quickly learn which flowers are most rewarding and how to get the the nectar and the pollen out of them. They're really smart. They've even been trained, what this tells us about them, I'm not sure, but they've been successfully trained to kind of play football, essentially could learn to roll a ball and drop it into a hole in exchange for rewards. They can even recognize different human faces and associate those with rewards. So 
they're much smarter than you might think from their kind of outwardly bumbling appearance. That's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're watching you, you know. Actually, one of the other really cool things that was discovered about bumblebees is, is that they do watch each other and they learn from each other. So if you have some bees in a cage with rewarding blue flowers and unrewarding yellow flowers, say, they quickly work out that the blue flowers are rewarding. But if you have a cage next door with bees in it with no flowers at all, they sit and watch the ones that are visiting the flowers and they learn from them. So they, as soon as they're given a chance to visit a yellow or a blue flower, they go straight for the blue ones. And I, that's, I mean, that's amazing that they can, they'll sit and watch and see what the other bees are learning and learn from that. How cool is that? Well, I have to say, you know, when I'm in my native garden and I'm, let's say I'm putting in some new plants and I'm digging holes for, to put some uh, seedlings in or what have you, the bumblebees never seem disturbed by my presence. They might buzz a little bit, but they just go on about their work moving from flower to flower. Whereas the wasps and the honeybees, they get really jazzed up and they get really, really kind of ticked off by my presence. But for some reason, the bumblebees get it. I guess they see me there every day, maybe, and they just know that I don't mean any harm. Have there been any studies to that end about how friendly they are with gardeners? I don't think so. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the endearing features of bumblebees is, is you can get really close to them. They're not fussed at all. Um, I guess that, I mean, what the reality is they're very single-minded that, you know, they're focused on collecting nectar and pollen. They don't really care what's going on around them as long as it doesn't bother them. But it, it does mean they're really amenable to scientific study. And, you know, that's perhaps why there's been lots of research done on bumblebees by people like me, because you can sit down with your notepad and you can pretty much press your nose up against the bee and she won't care. Right. So now they are in serious decline. So what could your average homeowner or gardener do to help bumblebees? How do they operate? I know they like to nest under the ground, right? Yeah, most of them nest under the ground, some just above the ground in tussocky grasses. Bumblebees need just need two things, which sounds easy, doesn't it? They need somewhere to nest, and the queen will start a nest in early spring, usually in a hole in the ground, or as I say, sometimes in just on the soil surface in some dense vegetation. And then she needs lots and lots of flowers. So yeah, nest sites and flowers. Unfortunately, in the modern world, there's the added peril that, that the flowers she visits might be contaminated with pesticides. First thing I would suggest, if you really want to encourage bumblebees in your backyard, don't spray any insecticides. It's kind of obvious, but, you know, still needs saying, I think, because a lot of people do. And then grow bee-friendly flowers. It's, it's so simple. There's loads of advice out there. I'm not a top expert on North American flowers. I could rattle off a long list of UK flowers. I tend to encourage people to grow natives. I think there are lots of advantages to that, both because there's evidence that native flowers tend to be slightly better on average than non-natives at attracting pollinators, but also there's the, an extra benefit that they often provide food plant for caterpillars of butterflies and moths and other herbivorous insects, which tend to be fussy about what they eat and usually won't eat non-natives. So grow some native wildflowers. And if you do, it's, I mean, it's amazing how quickly bees will find them anywhere, even in the middle of a city, even on a window box on, on the 10th floor of a tall apartment block. Pollinators will sniff out your flowers if you grow them. 
you're doing a little bit to help. It's harder to provide nest sites for bumblebees. They seem to occupy all sorts of, they're quite opportunistic, I think, in gardens. They'll nest in compost heaps, they'll nest under patios or decking or man-made structures. But if you try and make a nest box for them or buy one of the commercial boxes, usually they just ignore it. I don't think we've quite mastered the art of providing nest boxes for bumblebees. So the main thing you can do is, is provide the flowers. If you've got room to leave some tussocky grass, then you that might provide nest sites for some of the above ground nesting species, but it's a bit of a long shot. Now, that was going to be my next question. How far will a bumblebee fly to find pollen? Yeah, a long way. They'll go to the nearest patch of good flowers they can find from their nest. But if they have to, we know that they can fly at least a couple of miles and in an emergency, probably quite a bit further than that. That said, you know, in a good habitat with lots of flowers, most of them will be within 500 yards of the nest, because why would you fly further if you don't need to? But in an urban area, there are obviously even 500 metres will usually encompass lots and lots of gardens. That, I think, explains to some extent why we have pretty good evidence that bumblebees actually do quite well in urban areas already compared to farmland. Because if you, you you look at an urban area from above, imagine a bumblebee nest somewhere in there and draw a radius of 500 metres, it's going to find some flowers in most, you know, because it'll have dozens of gardens within easy reach. Bees happily obviously fly straight over the fence or the hedge or whatever. And so bumblebee nests in urban areas can usually find themselves a nice patch of flowers in someone's garden. And when that patch finishes, they might switch to another garden and visit someone else's flowers. So gardens are already quite good, but they obviously could be better. If everybody had patches of flowers, then uh, that would mean there could be way more bumblebees living in our towns. Right. And could you explain to our listeners for the newly emerging bumblebee queens in the late winter, early spring, they need to get to pollen right away as soon as they emerge, right? Yeah, so they've been asleep for six months uh, in some species, more like eight months. So they're starving. They come out in early spring when it's still pretty cold and there aren't many flowers. So that's a really key time if you can provide them with flowers. In my garden, they really go mad for, I've I've got a couple of uh, willow trees, salix, which I think probably grow in North America. I don't know. Do you have willows? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. We have native Um, willows here. The catkins of those are a really good early spring source for, anyway, they need something. They need pollen and nectar urgently when they wake up. And you see them sort of madly feeding and stocking up their energy reserves. And then they switch to looking for somewhere to nest. And so these are the queens are a really big, fat, chunky insects, very beautiful. And you'll see them once they've had a feed flying about low to the ground and they're looking for holes. And if they see a hole, they'll crawl in and investigate. And what they're hoping to find is a nice, cozy, dark, safe cavity that they can nest in. Ideally, one that's already got some old nest material from rodent nest down there that they can use to build their own nest and if they find all that they then have to gather a little ball of pollen put that little sort of pea-sized ball of pollen in the center of the nest and lay a batch of eggs on it and then they incubate the eggs a bit like a, a bird they sit on their brood and they shiver to generate heat 
but that uses lots of energy so that the, the queen has to dash out every few minutes back to the, the nearest flowers and stock up on nectar so that she can fuel all that shivering. So she's kind of backwards and forwards. And of course, all the time she's away, her nest is vulnerable to being attacked, the brood are going cold. So it must be a really stressful time for them the first few weeks. But if they get through that, those eggs turn into worker bees, which are kind of miniature versions of, of the mum. And they then take over the foraging. And, and I imagine that life gets a little easier at that point for the queen because she then doesn't need to leave the nest anymore. And the nest grows through the spring and can get to have a few hundred workers by summer. And then it switches to producing new queens and, and males and the old nest dies off. Wow. So, you know, if that newly emerging queen does not get to pollen and nectar quickly, that whole potential colony will just collapse. Yeah, which obviously, you know, explains why it's critical that, that there are lots of flowers so that then there's a good chance that wherever she's nested, she'll have easy access to some food. If she doesn't, you know, that colony is doomed. And we suspect that a pretty big proportion of queens just don't make it through that first phase. We've tried to measure how many make it through, but we never really managed to find an effective way of doing it. But it certainly seems that there are often a lot of queens flying around looking for nest sites, but relatively tiny numbers of nests a month later. So in your mind, after finding the best way to attract bumblebees to your yard and your garden, how do you keep them happy so they don't fly off and go somewhere else? I imagine a lot of digging would not be so good and mowing the lawn would not be so good. So if you want to keep them happy and stop them going into someone else's yard, then you need a continuity of flowers. And you can do that by having, you know, big, you can have beautiful, neat, it doesn't have to be untidy for bumblebees. They're very happy visiting neat formal flower borders or they're very happy visiting a, a higgledy-piggledy wildflower meadow but not too neat and tidy is, is not a bad thing if you don't mow your lawn then depends where you live and what the history of the lawn is but very often there are flowers that will pop up of their own accord without having to do any more than just leave the mower in the shed and that provides more food more diversity of flowers for the bees it's worth also bearing in mind that that bumblebees they vary a lot in the length of their tongues, different species of bumblebees. Some are adapted to visiting really deep flowers that hide the nectar at the end of a flower tube, whereas others have much shorter tongues and visit shallow flowers. So in an ideal world, if you've got loads of space, then if you can provide a continuity of both deep flowers and shallow flowers from March right through to August, September, then that's the dream. But don't fret if you can't, because probably your neighbours will also have some flowers that, and the bees will just nip over the fence and feed there if for a week or two they can't find anything in your yard. Most of us haven't got room for, for the perfect array of every possible flower that, that bees might fancy. Now, I have to tell you this story. I was at a restaurant one night having dinner with a friend when we overheard a woman a few tables away asking the waiter to go outside and capture the luna moth that was attached to the screen window at her table. She proudly announced that she would bring it home to her son, who was a Boy Scout, and together they would pin the moth to a foam board for his collection of bees, moths, and butterflies. Now, in the United States, there are roughly one million Boy Scouts. I would say the time for pinning live insects to foam boards in order to get a badge as long past, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, so full disclosure, I'm 57. When I was about 
10 years old, I collected butterflies and moths. And I found it a really absorbing way. I, I learned a lot from it and helped me get into to loving insects. And, you know, Charles Darwin did, David Attenborough did, not that I put myself in the same category as either of those people. But having said that, that was nearly 50 years ago and the world has changed and there just isn't room now for everybody to go around killing insects to make their own little collection. Also, of course, there's been massive improvements in, in photography equipment. You know, even mobile phones will take great photos. So you can make a collection of photographs these days, which wasn't really easy to do at all when I was a kid. But yeah, they're just there's too many people and not enough insects. We've got to tread more gently. Now, is there anything else as we wrap up here that you could say to people to help them understand why you titled the book Silent Earth? Well, of course, that is a tribute really to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which was published 60 in 1962, so 61 years ago. And that was a kind of, I mean, a really profoundly important book that brought people's attention to, to the harm that pesticides were doing. Although she eventually kind of won the day and, and people having initially criticised her came around to realising that she was correct, that these pesticides were harmful and the ones she was most concerned about, like DDT, were banned. The reality is it's got worse since then. There are many more pesticides, some of them much more toxic to insects. And insects also face this plethora of other problems, all of them man-made, habitat loss and climate change and light pollution and so on, that, as I describe in the book. This is all sounding rather doom and gloom. I wanted firstly to remind people of the importance of insects, of the severity of the many problems that they face. But to give them hope and to give them, you know, the final quarter of the book is all about what we can all do. And it's got sections for politicians and farmers and, and ordinary gardeners and everybody can find something and often lots of things that they could do to help. So my hope is to motivate people to do something. That At the end of the day, that's why I wrote the book. If I can galvanise people to plant flowers for bees, to stop spraying pesticides, to buy organic produce, eat less meat, and so on and so on, then I've done my job. And obviously, that's a bit ambitious to think that I can make much impact on my own, but that's what I'm trying to do. I'd like to thank Dave Goulson for joining us today. You can find his new book, Silent Earth, by going to the Barnes & Noble website or Amazon.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young you will be rewarded with many hours of bird-watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.